It's great to be together as we pray that the Lord would show us Christ. Over the last number of months, we've been preaching through the book of Genesis and beholding Christ together. Um, If you missed it, we've taken a break from Genesis uh, really through the summer, and we're starting a series that really digs into what does it mean to be the church. Way back in 1960, before most of us here were born, and a few of us were quite a bit younger, um, Westminster John Knox Press published a book written titled Images of the Church in the New Testament, where Paul Minear, pronunciation, not sure, but he explores 96 different images for the church in one book. So we could actually do 96 different sermons, conveniently just about two years, um, which would be awesome. But we're currently not planning to do this, but it's worth delving deeper into. Because really, these sermons are are big picture sermons. There is so much more than what we can cover as we walk through these themes together. For this morning... I wonder what image comes to mind when you think of the church. When you think of church, do you think body or temple, building, maybe people of God or house or 91 more images? One of my all-time favorites is the Bride of Christ, which after uh, talking to Elaine and hearing the name of the church she grew up in, Bride of Christ... Um, I will never be able to say it the same, Um, but Bride of Christ is for next week, all right, so wait for that. Each of these images are significant for communicating rich truth about who we are together in God, but none is more important to grasp than one particular image, though all are important, because while some images are helpful, they're helpful For us to understand what it means to be in Christ together as his people, the health and functioning of the church will rise and fall on one image. And that is the church as family. The church as family. So right off the bat, I wonder what does that image mean to you? Does it hold a unique or a significant understanding? If it does, how does it impact your life as a part of this body? Is it merely an image or is it something much deeper? And I just want to warn you right up front, beware, because if you grasp this, if we grasp this, church as family, it will change your life, maybe even our church. And it's meant to. And so with that, let's pray together. Oh God, Lord, we gather as church and even already just understanding this reality of the church's family, that's not a new thing for most of us. We have a concept there. But Lord, would you dig deep? Would you work deeply in our hearts and transformationally through your spirit, by your word, would you let us see Christ 
and what it means to be in him together, how to live that together. Lord, I pray that you would work in our midst what is good and pleasing in your sight and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand because we need you, every one of us, to be set free in the beauty of this family. We pray for the glory of your name. Amen. So the church as family is the central New Testament image for the church. And there's no surprise there. But it is more than just a title or an image. It came to be the descriptive word of the members of a local body to understand their relationship toward one another and towards the global church. right? The family of Christ scattered abroad. Old Testament Israel understood that they were a nation of tribes. They were a shared physical lineage. They were physical family. All of them were Abraham's offspring. If you asked them, they knew. They all go back to that one, to Abraham. Yet God promised to Abraham that through his offspring, there would be a blessing for the nations. And we will look at that as we jump back into Genesis in a few months. And as Peter preached a few weeks ago, really this reality has come to pass because the gospel is going into all nations. And we are a part of that. Even right now, even in Belize, we're a part of that. We get to share in the global reality of the gospel fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. And so when Jesus came as the offspring of Abraham, And in fulfillment of the promise that we looked at in Genesis 3.15 of the offspring who would come and crush the serpent's head, right? That when Jesus came fulfilling these things, his disciples, there you go, uh, his followers were first called disciples. And that was rabbinic language of the day. They knew they were Abraham's offspring, right? Physical descendants. So these are disciples, Jesus was their teacher. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, something changed. And you hear it right in the language of John even. After Jesus rises, he actually says, go and tell to my brothers. He declares something. The relationship has shifted. As Gentiles are grafted into Christ, we find a greater spiritual reality being birthed. And that's that Abraham's offspring are actually those who are the faith of Abraham. It is a spiritual family that transcends and even trumps the physical descendants of Abraham. And Jesus confronted that in his day. The apostles confronted it after him. So that in Romans 9, Paul could write, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. To be physically an offspring of Abraham doesn't make you a true offspring of Abraham. There is something greater that is occurring in Christ. And you see something incredible happened. In Galatians 4, if you open there, paints it beautifully. We see this. In Galatians 4 from verse 3 and following, as you're turning there, 
Let me start reading in verse 3. Paul writes, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, this is verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, or sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son, the spirit of Christ, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, we are a redeemed and adopted people. Verse 6 beautifully declares this. As the spirit of the Son of God, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts is crying out the same Abba cry of Jesus in the garden. Abba, Father. Why? Because we are a people who have been adopted into family. We are sons and daughters in the Son. And we have a new Father. God is our Father. If you've been here for training hour over the past few months, we've taken a lot of time to, to unpack a little bit. Right? I feel like we still just scratched the surface, but a little bit of the reality of what it means to be adopted sons and daughters of God. It's a beautiful journey and a beautiful picture. It's worthy of much more than we can offer here in this small and short time together. But in this light, we find that the language as we go through the book of Acts actually shifts because it starts out the disciples, the disciples when speaking of other Christians, and it changes to the brothers, or the brothers and sisters. And that becomes the predominant way of referring to one another in the church. We are disciples of Christ, brothers and sisters to one another. With God as our Father, Jew and Gentile together. Ephesians 2 says it this way. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. All right, in, amidst a plethora of images in that passage, we are members of the household of God. And that states clearly who we are in relationship one to another and to God as our Father. Paul says it beautifully in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Do you hear that? The church is the household of God. Can you imagine 
that you wake up on a Sunday morning and you're, you're packing up your car and your neighbor's like, hey, where are you headed? All right, of course, around here, people kind of get an idea of where you're headed. But say they ask it anyway. You say, well, I'm headed over to, what do you say? Often we'd say, I'm headed over to the church. In the back of our heads, we know that doesn't quite sound right because we know that the church is not a, a building. The church is a people. And I like the language that Paul weaves in, that we are a household. Can you imagine answering, instead of, I'm headed over to the church, ah, I'm headed home. What, aren't you leaving home? Well, yeah, but I'm headed home. See, there's another home, another family that I'm a part of. We are the household of God. Imagine if you asked other people, so, uh, you know, what local family are you a part of? Is that a part of our language? We don't ask that. What local church? And that's not wrong because we are his church. It's right. We are the church. The church who is a household, who has made a family. I'm part of the risen king family. Wouldn't that be better? We're a family. The apostle Peter uses the same term for the church in 1 Peter 4.17 when he simply says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 6.10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. The church, the pillar and buttress of truth, is not a building. It is a people, a household of faith. And these are not proof texts scattered through New Testament writings, right? These reveal to us the great shaping reality that the gospel brought into God's people. How the apostles came to view the people of God as true family. And they thought deeply on these things. We are also called to think deeply on these things. Because this reality shaped how the early church viewed one another, how they lived together, how they interacted together, how they cared for one another. Why do you think the early chapters of Acts, they almost shock us when we read them because we don't read them through a family lens or in a family context. Why would they sell everything and care for one another? Why would they live and interact together? That's radical. And yet the scripture simply says they were of one heart and soul because there was a shift in how they understood their relationship to the world versus their relationship to one another. They lived it together. They needed each other. They were made a new family. So why is it at times difficult for us to attach real life meaning and application in terms of actually viewing each other as true family, living according to that greater reality. I want to offer up just two barriers, two barriers that I think we as a church, in the global church, wherever I've been, these are realities that we all face in the light of what Scripture calls us to. Because each of us gathered here have at least two things already working against us. One is the culture that we've grown up in. The second is our own experience in family. So first, barriers to family. 
culture. Let's just briefly look at these. Culture is a bit tricky, right? When, when we hear family or household, we can immediately get caught up in a Western uh, nuclear family model, not, <clears throat> not nuclear. There's a difference, okay? Nuclear, father, mother, children. That's the center family, the, the nuclear family. We're expected as a family made up of, of those members to be self-sufficient, to save for a future that depends on no one, to keep our needs private, not to take charity or handouts from anyone else, though often that's a bit of older generation, but it's still there. The priority of emphasis of family is on the immediate, right? It's, it's not aunts and uncles and cousins, though maybe, depending on the relationships, but that's sort of an outer ring of family priority. Growing up, very few of us would, would be financially contributing to the needs of all of our cousins. At some point, Christmas gifts usually stop, right? It, it, it really is our four and no more, uh, in a sense. Uh, often, not always. A Ugandan or East African context in many other countries of the world, family is expected to care for one another through all stages of life. Family relationships are broader. Uncles are considered fathers. And let me tell you, that gets confusing when someone says, my father died. Your father. And you you dig, 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 dig. Okay, it was an uncle. I didn't know him so well, but. um, (laughs) All right. But the terminology is inclusive. It's, It's because we are family. Uncles are fathers. Aunties are mothers. Uh, cousins, this is my cousin brother, this is my cousin sister, or just brother and sister. It carries a weight of responsibility and expectation very different than we would expect here. It's common to contribute towards your, your nieces and nephews, your cousins, second cousins, third cousins, their educational needs, their weddings. Talk about weddings. You guys would love that. Everyone who's had to pay for a wedding. <laughs> in Uganda, you, there are wedding meetings, serious, and they are fundraisers, all right? Because everyone contributes to the family and to family weddings and burials and hospital expenses and anything else you can think of. It is assumed we care for one another, even if you're just adding your small $1, $2, $5, you add something because it's a part of showing we are a part of each other We are family together. We support one another. And that's beautiful. Here in the West, our own practice is usually small and private. So that is a barrier to understanding and living out this biblical vision of family. Again, the the, the language in Acts seems so foreign to us, not as foreign in a Ugandan context. Those are cultural reasons. But neither culture necessarily has it right or wrong. It's it's not as if we're wrong, they're right, because there are massive (laughs) problems on that side of things as well. The warning, though, for all of us is that we don't read Scripture through the limited lens of our culture, trying to make Scripture fit into our little lens, as opposed to letting Scripture confront and change us and the way we think and how we practice our lives and the faith that we proclaim. We want to submit ourselves to Scripture. We want to allow God to reorient us all into conformity with His kingdom culture. Because God loves to confront cultures. 
and he does it through his word. Jesus himself radically confronted the culture of his day. Remember in Luke 14 when Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And if you read that, you've just kind of gone, what? I mean, what is he? Shocked, right? It's shocking. But it's meant to be shocking. It's meant to be confronting. Just like in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus is told that his mother and his brothers are looking for him. Remember that? Remember what Jesus answered? Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those around him, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Shocking. Now don't miss it. Jesus is not saying that children no longer have to honor their parents. In fact, Jesus will uphold this calling. He will honor both his heavenly father and his earthly parents. Right? The Apostle Paul, really building on that reality in 1 Timothy 5, he says this, that if someone neglects to make provision for their own relatives okay, and household, relatives, extended, household, inner, uh, speaking of biological and extended family, uh, if anyone neglects to make provision for these relatives, they have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. All right? and, and that's strong language, and it's meant to be. Right? And so you do have a calling to provide and a calling to care. There is a whole spectrum of calling within biological family. In fact, Jesus gives special care to his mother, even at the cross, right? entrusting her to John. But that's more than just entrusting her to the responsibility of the firstborn. Right? Jesus says firstborn. There's more going on than that because Jesus' brothers later would believe. They didn't believe here, but they would believe there's something greater going on because there's a greater kingdom reality as Jesus transfers care for his mother to his disciple, to his brother, who will become a brother in Christ, John. Jesus' words demonstrate the greater kingdom economy, that in Christ's church, family doesn't negate but transcends physical bonds. And that's important to see those together. That's Jesus' point when he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Right? Mark is great in that text because he actually doesn't even tell us if Jesus went to talk to his family. The words are supposed to sit on us. He was saying there's something greater, even more binding than biological family, without dismissing biological family. And that's that family that is created in Christ. Taking us back to the Luke 14 passage, as much as it's meant to be shocking, hate father, mother, brother, sisters, the key phrase is found right down towards the end, even his own life. Did you hear that? To follow Jesus is to reorient everything around the primacy of Jesus in our lives. He actually ends the the passage in verse 33 by saying, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
And that really is the key to the whole passage. That's really what he's saying. He isn't saying, hate your family. He is saying, renounce everything for Christ. Jesus is primary. Jesus is greater. To be in him is to be connected to true family. And in that, then, you can live in relationship to family. You are actually set free to go back and to love truly mother, father, brothers, sisters in Christ. A sacrificial, giving love. But that recognizes there is a love and a calling and a responsibility that is greater. It transcends the physical, biological Tension is supposed to be there. My friend Mubarak is from an African country that is predominantly Muslim. Jesus beautifully and graciously revealed himself to Mubarak, became the first known Christian in his tribe with much political power. Um, as he wanted to share the good news of Christ with his family, he went, he shared it, and his father tried to kill him. And that has happened multiple times to the point where Mubarak, too much to the story, radically saved, radically, from death, had to flee his country, leave his biological family, and go where he could be safe. He left family, and in leaving family, he gained family. Now, that's hard, and it takes time. But the spiritual family became Mubarak's family. And even after his father tried to kill him so many times, one of the last conversations I had with him, with tears, I, I just want to go back home and just look my dad and say, but Jesus is the Son of God. Like, if he kills me, he kills me. <laughs> you know, like, like, his heart for his family See, that's what Jesus is talking about, right? In that reality, because his dad is saying, you leave this Jesus, you come back to Islam. And he's saying, no, no. Then you hate us. Yes, because I love Jesus. Jesus is my savior. Jesus is my Lord. You lose family and you gain family. I wonder if Mubarak walked in here into this room having lost all, would he find family? Would he be taken into family? Do we view ourselves and our families in such a way that they are bigger than this, into this? When we left for Uganda in 2004, we chose to leave our families behind. That would have been fun to take them with us, but that is not what the Lord had called us to. I remember as Laura Beth held nine-month-old Elisha, on the airplane, ready to leave Chicago, tears in her eyes, she knew that she was taking away these precious baby years from his grandparents. And there were a lot of baby years over the next 18 years. A lot of tears. We felt the rending and the tension of biological family to the greater calling of the kingdom and greater family. We're supposed to. And we had some lonely years, longing for just the feeling of family. But as we lived out the gospel that we professed, as we received and grew in relationship with our Ugandan brothers and sisters in Christ, we found God 
gave us family. We didn't just wake up one day and suddenly it was family. It was like all of a sudden we realized, wow, we're a part of family. We feel like we're a part of family. We love this family. And God gave us mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And that is a precious, precious gift. Do you believe that? Has biological family become an idol that keeps you from fulfilling your calling and responsibilities to the greater family that you have been made a part of in Christ, both locally and globally? All right, so culture, right? Culture is a barrier for all of us. That's first. Second, second barrier is our own experience in family. We have all had vastly different experiences in family. Some great, some terrible. Each of us, our experiences with our own fathers and mothers are very different, right? Some of us had dads who reflected the Heavenly Father beautifully. We praise God for them. They imparted value. They pursued relationship. They gave protection and love. They communicated acceptance. They gave discipline and grace. And there are fathers here in our midst doing this right now. Hallelujah. Others have had fathers who were tools of brokenness, right? tearing down, wounding, scarring. Instead of imparting value, just imparting worthlessness. Instead of relationship, abandonment. Instead of protection, that feeling of just being unsafe or abused. Instead of love, a great void or bitterness or even hatred. Instead of acceptance, rejection. Instead of grace, harsh criticism and judgment and on and on. All right, some of us have had mixtures of, of, of these two. Interestingly, that in Christian homes, whether here or overseas, I found that it's actually common to find the strain of relationships between fathers and mothers and children and extended family, right? The strain and the hurt of one to another to be so severe I know that each of you can think, probably think of someone connected to you in your family, right? Where the strain of relationship is so severe that where there should be deep relationship, through a whole lot of shared life, a whole lot of experiences, through love, through connections, instead there is shallow relationship. Where there should be openness, there is guardedness. Instead of vulnerability, there is self-protection. And on it goes, right? Because the wounds of family run deep. Some of you cannot relate to all of this, but all of you can relate to some of it. Because this is a human reality. Imagine taking all of that baggage, all the baggage pieces that I just described. Imagine taking all of that and walking through the doors on a Sunday morning. Hey, church, I'm here to do family, right? Here we go. It's no wonder that for many of us, when we come together, we're already guarded toward genuine relationship. And if you have had a terrible or a hurtful or a broken church experience in the past, man, good luck trying out this family thing on me. No way. Am I really safe here and among these people? Because I've been failed how many times? by physical family, by spiritual family. The reality, though, the reality for all of us, 
is that it is in the context of fallen family, right? The, the reality of our brokenness in family, that our own hearts are truly revealed, right? We can hide them before others, but it is impossible. It is, or at least very difficult, to hide our sin and selfishness and failures and shortcomings in the midst of family. It's a whole lot easier to point that big finger, right? And hide ourselves. Because of this, many families become places of wall building and professional hiding. Hiding in a bedroom, hiding in a basement, hiding in a den, a man cave, a garden. (laughs) Hiding by not being present at home. Hiding behind a screen, hiding in work, right? Because I've got to provide hiding because in family, our true selves are revealed. Our selfishness, our frustrations, our angers, the me-centered reality that we all have to deal with every day when we get out of bed is revealed in family. And it's the same in God's family. Right here, we can hide in the busyness of our own lives. We can hide in the distractions of lives and screens or sports. But we were made for more. We were made for redeemed family. You hear that? We were made for redeemed family. Because the reality is that we face a true enemy to genuine relationship, to genuine family. And yes, Satan is the true enemy. There's no question. He opposes us. He opposes family. He hates family. He hates your physical family. He hates spiritual family. He wants to see it divided. He wants to see it imploding and wall-built and wounding and hurting. And yes, he delights in all of that. But there is an enemy that is at work within us. And I'm talking about the enemy of sin. Just as sin can create gaps in relationships in earthly family because we have been hurt by each other and we have hurt one another, sin can even create an unbridgeable gap between fathers and mothers and children, etc., etc., right? A gap between friends. Have any of you felt that? See, this gap is just too big. Broken places of the heart because the wounds of family are the deepest wounds of the heart. But here's the thing, and don't miss this. Sin has created an unbridgeable gap between you and your God. Between you and your true father. The one who planned your life. The one who gave you life. The one who put you in a fallen, sinful, broken human family. He has not failed you. No matter how your earthly relationships might fail you, no matter how even church family might fail you, he has never failed you. We have done to God far worse than any person or family member has ever done to us. We have all dishonored our true father, all of us. We have spurned his love. We have turned to other lovers, idols. We have rejected his kindness. We have grumbled and complained, and some of us are professionals. We make a lifestyle of living out the realities of our rebellion against our God. We have failed to treasure him above all. We have all failed to honor his word, to live under his good and loving fatherhood. We have rejected his discipline. 
or at least fought against it, and we have believed the lies of the flesh, the lies of the enemy. But God has done what we could not do for ourselves. He has bridged the insurmountable gap by our, left by our sin. He, the perfect father, sent his perfect son who took on flesh, who gave his life to bring us back to the father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came and took the wounds of broken family, the wounds of our sin, the wounds of our rebellion onto himself. He experienced the pain and rejection and abuse in family. He experienced it. His own Family misunderstood him. They didn't believe in him. At one point, even his mom and brothers were looking for him, thinking he's out of his mind. He's crazy. And while one person, not one person here can fully understand and identify with your situation, I would be a fool to think that I can. There is one who perfectly understands. And his name is Jesus. He alone understands you. And you're experience with family, spiritual and physical. Yet Jesus took all of the brokenness of sin onto himself. He bridged the insurmountable gap. He died as a sacrifice for our sin, taking the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion. And he conquered death. And he rose from the dead that we might be set free no longer held captive, a people set free from the wounds and disappointments and hurts from our own sin and those realities as well as those of others so that we can now experience genuine family. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in Christ you can experience the genuine blessing of family? Do you believe that? Love, acceptance, provision, protection, discipline, grace, because those are truly meant to come to us from God. Yes, earthly fathers should image them. Earthly mothers should image them, but they fail. But it's God alone who gives them truly, and they come to us in Christ. So we all have that in common. All of us, all of us have this thing in common. We all long for family. He's put it in us, regardless of your experience, because God made us for family. And he graciously provides us with places to experience it together. Brothers and sisters, we are members of the household of God. Members of the household of faith. We are a family formed by the gospel. Did you hear that? We are a a gospel-formed family. We have a new brother, Jesus the Son. Hebrews 2.11 says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers, brothers and sisters. We have a new family privilege. We get to call God Abba, Father. Romans 8, as we read earlier. We get to resonate, I hope, with the Apostle John when he writes in 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We, and so we are. 
We are a gospel-formed family because it's through the truth of the gospel that we are brought into relationship with God and one another. No matter how old you are, you have fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters around you right here. Don't miss that. You've been put into family because you're loved. And because the wounds of family are meant to be healed in family. Not in isolation, not in rejection, not in living life at home, not in hiding away. But it's in the grind of daily living before one another. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters, in all purity. Very important ending there. And this family language defines how we view and relate to each other right here. Because it's among one another that we get to live out repentance. We get to lift out and live out and demonstrate grace towards each other. We are empowered to live with the same humility and love here as we're called to in our own physical families. And that's why the New Testament is loaded with language for how we are to function together in Christ as family. Redeemed family is a gift. What kind of language does the New Testament use? Out on the welcome table, I put a stack of these sheets. Not enough time. I don't even have time to read through all of the scriptures, but I just want you to listen. Because when scripture commands us to one another each other, right, that is a family context. It is living out this faith in the context of God's family. And so at the top it says, house rules for God's family. I did not make this up. I don't even remember where I got it. Um, and I'm sure you could do better. All right? There's things missing, things that could be added on. But just listen to how we are called to live out this family in Christ together. It says, be at peace with one another from Mark 9. Love one another, John 13. Be joined to one another, Romans 12. Be devoted to one another, Romans 12. Honor one another, Romans 12. Actually, there's a lot from Romans 12. You should read Romans 12. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Counsel one another. Greet one another. Agree with each other. Wait for one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Carry one another's burdens. And I love that one from Galatians 6. You could translate it, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Because there is a law of Christ lived out by his people in family. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. Bear with one another. Teach, admonish each other. Encourage one another. Build up one another. Spur one another on. Offer hospitality to one another. What is hospitality? 
you are welcome in my presence and I'll share with you whatever I've got. Right? That's all it is. Right there in Christ. Minister gifts to one another. Be humble toward one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Fellowship with one another. Do you want want to be a part of that? Do you want to be a part of a family that pursues living out those gospel realities? These are the things that he has called us to. Earlier, I almost said, imagine what this family would be like if we came together each week and lived these things out. And then I caught myself. (laughs) Do you know why? Right? Because even though we should gather on Sundays, right, the truth is, is that we should be living these things out together through the week in relationship with each other, in each other's homes, in our, our little families, our big families, inviting each other in, sharing our lives together. True hospitality. Practicing family together. Will we face conflict? Yes. Welcome to family. In conflict that we get to grow deeper together. We get to pursue genuine love. We get to practice living repentance. We must do these things. We must allow God to confront our culture and our experiences, our barriers to family. We must repent where we need to repent. We must love where we are called to love. We must let God confront our church culture. Because every local church can and will develop its own little culture. It it really will create blind spots, things that we don't see. If you're new here and you've come for a couple of months, you actually will have the best eyes to see, right? Because we get caught just doing things our way and unable to see beyond sort of just the, the, the culture that we create. And there are good parts and there will be parts that need to grow and change. There will be parts that actually work against growing in family together. We must also confront our various spheres of relationships. And this is really the end. I want you to think about this in the light of of this message. It's easy to allow spheres of relationships to distract us from our primary calling to love, serve, and care for each other, right? To grow as family together. Schools. And sports can easily do this. And do you know why? I've already found this. I, I didn't have this in Uganda. I mean, I lived in a community and we walked, we lived among everyone we did uh, life with, we worshiped with. Um, but already, texts and emails from sports and from schools, ways to serve, ways to volunteer, ways to be a part, ways to ways, and there's always a thousand things to do. And we have to consistently come back and say, as Laura and I together, what is our family culture? What are we called to at the center? And then what do we want to to move out from that? So as Malachi plays baseball, he's playing baseball because we want to build relationships in our community. But we will not be centered around sports. We will not allow that to be the thing that drives us, though we fight against it constantly. Schools and et cetera. Even homeschool can do the same. 
right? Pockets of relationships centered around homeschooling instead of around Christ and his body. And don't get me wrong, right? Pursue those relationships. Pockets of relationships are good and healthy. That's a part of how we grow together. But we must see ourselves above and beyond and bigger than those pockets or we will get lost and trapped by them. And we will never experience family as a body. We'll just have our pockets here and here and here, centered around, right? For us, we're centered around sports. For us, we're centered around this. For us, this. For us, this. No, we need one another. Be mindful of what your primary calling is as a part of this family because family is God's great gift to you, purchased at the cost of his son. Do not waste this great gift of family. Do not waste this risen king family. Do not waste what you've been entrusted with. and Do not waste your biological family. Let us grow together as true family in Christ together. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you, Lord, that we get to call you Father and that you invite us into this great family, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you have put us into family in Christ together. You've created something greater. You alone, Lord, know the needs that each one of us face, whether it's culture, whether it's our experiences, whether it's our pockets and spheres of relationship that wars against the truth of what you've purchased, the truth of what you've brought us into, the truth of what you've made us to be as family in Christ. Lord, we need you. Would you move among us? Would you stir us not to leave here thinking about how we've been failed in family? Lord, let us leave here aware of the beauty that awaits us as we pursue Christ together in relationship with each other. May we not make family an idol, but may we gather in pursuit of Christ together, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. Lord, thank you for the fathers and mothers in this place. Thank you. Thank you for the brothers and sisters and the sons and the daughters. May we know you, walk with you, serve you with our lives, worship you together. Lord, even as we come to table, what a picture of family. Would you stir us afresh for the grace that is ours in Christ as we come. This calling of family gathered around your table. It is only the grace of your son, Lord, through which we gather. Blessed be your name. Amen.